100 years. And so if we would take God at his word, if we would believe what the Bible says about healing and what the Bible says about faith and what the Bible says about the goodness of God, we could receive a lot more than most Christians would have us receive. So with that uh, foundation laid, with those simple biblical truths that healing is good, that God is good, that God heals all who come to him in faith and that sickness is from the devil, why don't we jump into uh, God's word? We're going to start in Luke chapter 1. And while you're flipping to Luke chapter 1, I want to share a story. Uh, This happened to me maybe a month and a half ago. I was at my in-law's house, and, uh, and there was a hockey game on TV. Now, this was maybe a month and a half ago, back when the Olympics were going. Did anyone watch the Olympics? Anyone into the Olympics? Yeah, there's a couple. So I was at my in-law's house, and uh, there was a hockey game going on. Now, let me, let me ask this before I, before I get into the story. Uh, so I'm a big fan of the United States. I, I think that the United States is pretty much the best at everything. But if we had to pick one thing that Canada could beat the United States in, what would that one thing be? It'd be hockey, right? Like, or curling. Not, not, not this curling, you know, like, this, this curling. I don't, I, I don't get curling. But we'd say that the Canada might beat us in hockey, right? So I'm at my in-law's house, and this hockey game is on TV. It's the women's championship hockey game. And it's the United States in the championship. And who are they playing but Canada? So already it's not looking good, right? Like, the U.S. has made it pretty far. Like, this is really great. Silver is good. But we're playing Canada, right? So there's probably not much hope for us. So I'm watching the game, and there's about two minutes left, and the game is tied. And then with about two minutes left, the United States commits a penalty. And so they have one of their, one of their players you know, penalized in the box. And so for the last couple minutes of the game, Canada has, I believe it's called a power play. This is like the only hockey game I've ever watched. But they have the power play where they have a one-man advantage. So things are not looking good for the United States team, right? Canada already is, you know, considered probably the best hockey nation in the world. And we're playing them one man short. And so anyone that was, like, any normal person would be watching this game, and they would probably be saying to themselves, like, the question they would be asking is, will the United States win? Probably not, right? Except... When I was watching this game, I wasn't watching this game live. I didn't catch the last two minutes as it was happening. I was watching replays of the game about eight hours later. And I had seen on Facebook that the United States team had already won the game. And so that changed my frame of mind. When I was watching the game, the question I wasn't asking the question, will the United States win? Because I already knew the United States was going to win the game, or rather that they had already won the game. So the question I was asking was, how will the United States win the game? And I think for us, we have God's word. We already know how the game ends. We already know that the United States has won the hockey championship. We already know that sickness has been paid for. We already know that God has provided all of our needs according to his riches and glory. So when we're confronted with something in life, whether you know, it's losing a job or a bad diagnosis from a doctor or committing a penalty and the United States is down a man, whatever it is, we should not be asking the question, will the United States win? Will I be healed of this sickness? Will God provide my needs? We should already know. We've already gotten the answer from God's word. So if we stand there and we ask questions that God has already answered, we're not standing in faith. If the doctor gives us a bad diagnosis and we start asking, oh, like, what, what can God do? How on earth am I going to get through this? Oh, like, is there, can God do anything for me? No, the Bible already tells you. We need to change our, uh, our frame of mind. We need to change the way we think about these things. And rather than asking those questions that God has already answered, what we need to do is we need to ask, uh, or rather declare what God has already said, and understand that we may not know exactly how we're going to get there. We may not know how the United States is going to win the game, but we know it's going to happen. Someone in the back shouted amen. There we go. I'm just, I'm just going to tell you something real quick. Like, when you say things like amen, it makes me think like, oh, wow, like, he knows what he's talking about. So when I say things like, 
The Bible tells us that the answer has been settled, that God has healed us of our diseases, that the devil has no power in our lives. You guys can say, and maybe if I say something like, God will provide all of our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, that the devil can't take anything from us, you can say, there we go. See, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to tell you, each of you, when you walked in the door, I think Tony gave you a gift. It was a little bag, and it included five amens and a hallelujah. Okay, so every one of you has that in your bag, and you're more than welcome to use those during the service. Have we gotten to Luke chapter 1 yet? We should not be asking, will this happen? We should understand that it already has happened, that the game is already won, that sickness has already been defeated, and that God has already provided for us. Luke chapter 1. We're going to see a couple examples of this uh, playing out in Luke chapter 1. We'll start in verse number 5. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to their Lord, their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Verse 18, And Zacharias said to the Lord, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. So we saw, where was it? We saw in verse 13 that this is something that Zacharias had been praying for. He and his wife had been praying to have a child. And then an angel appears to Zacharias and says, Zacharias, God has answered your prayer. You are going to have a kid. And Zacharias looks at this giant, radiant angel that had just appeared before him and said to the angel, how do I know that's true? (laughs) Zacharias doubts this angel who has appeared to him. Like now, I've never had an angel appear to me, but I would think if some giant angel appeared before you and told you something was going to happen, that that would probably be evidence enough that this thing was going to take place. But not for Zacharias, because Zacharias has an excuse lined up. He says, well, how on earth do I know that that's true? I'm old. I can't have kids. My my wife is old. We can't have kids. This is something that he has been praying for. But he doubted that God was actually going to follow through with it. A couple verses later, we read about a similar experience with, uh, with Mary. Let's read what happens here. Verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to the city of Galilee, named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, 
since I do not know a man. Now, it sounds like Mary asks a similar question, but if you actually look what she said, she asks a very different question. She doesn't doubt what the angel is saying. Uh, what the angel is saying. She doesn't say, how can this be? What she asks for is clarification. She says in verse, where was I? In verse uh, 34, how can this be since I don't know a man? In other words, I believe that it's going to happen. I just don't know how we're going to get there. I don't know how the United States is going to win the championship game. I don't know how we get from point A to point B. So can you let me know what I need to do to get there? And the angel answers in verse 35. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be kind, whereas Zacharias was not. Zacharias, for him, the word of this angel was not enough to convince him of what God had spoken. And I think for a lot of people here, not necessarily here in this, in this room, but Christians nowadays, we find ourselves in a similar situation. Now, you might be thinking, angels don't appear to me. tell me what's going to happen. And that's true. But you have God's word. Now, for Zacharias and for Mary, and it's worth noting that both times when an angel appears to them, the angel quotes God's word to them. But we don't have the word of an angel telling us what's going to happen. We have the word of God himself telling us what's going to happen telling us what God has promised, telling us what has, been paid for, uh, what has been paid for and what belongs to us. And so you would be right in saying that we don't have the word of an angel, that an angel has not appeared to us. God has just preserved it in his word. And if you've studied the Bible, you know that it's a remarkable story of how this book has survived uh, persecution after persecution after persecution of nearly every superpower in the world, and yet it survives to this day with all of God's promises intact. And so what I want to talk about tonight is I want to talk about believing God with the end in mind. Believing God with the end in mind. Do we believe that the United States has already won the game? Or do we wonder whether or not God or the United States can pull through and win this game? Do we believe that Jesus has already paid the price for sickness? Or are we wondering if God can still do additional things to get us what we want? Do we believe that God has provided all of our needs according to his riches and glory? Or are we waiting for God to do something extra for us? Let's look at a couple examples in the Bible. If you have a Bible, why don't you go to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 5. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, uh, uh, quick side note, uh, so I have a job, and uh, one of my coworkers just moved here from Israel, and so I asked him, because someone had told me once that it's not pronounced Capernaum, it's pronounced Capernaum. So I asked my, my friend from Israel who just moved here if it's Capernaum or Capernaum, and he said it's Capernaum, is how you would say it in Hebrew. But we don't live in Israel, we live in the United States, so we're going to call it Capernaum. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. If you read it in Young's literal translation, it says, Uh, having come, I will heal him. Verse 8, And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, uh, I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said, though, uh, said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. 
And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will, cast, will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way. And as you have believed, so let it be, uh, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. So Jesus, talking about the centurion, says a couple things. He says uh, that this man has believed, and he has said that this man has great faith. Now, how did Jesus know that this man had great faith? It would have to be because of the things that this man said. The words that this man said. This man came to Jesus, and he said, Speak the word only, and my servant shall be made well. He didn't say, well, maybe my servant will get better. It's possible, God, if you're willing, that my servant will be made well. Or like, hopefully, you know, like I just beg and pray that possibly you can find it in your heart of hearts to make my servant better. No, he comes to Jesus and he makes a declarative statement. He says, my servant will be made well. And Jesus hears that man's statement of faith and says, this is great faith, such as I have not seen in all of Israel. And then the man receives that very same hour what he had asked for. This man came with the end in mind. This man came knowing that the United States had already won the hockey game. This man was persuaded that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. There were no questions. There were no doubts. There was no unsurety. This man knew what God had said, and he knew that he would receive. He came with the end in mind, and Jesus called that faith. Let's look at another example. Matthew, or sorry, Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 25. Now a certain woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things for many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So this woman's been sick. She's been bleeding for 12 years. She's gone to all the doctors. The doctors couldn't help. She spent all her money. The money didn't make her any better. Verse 27. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Now, I've pointed this out a couple times, but it tells us right there in verse 27, when she heard about Jesus. Now, how did this woman hear about Jesus? This woman, because of, of her disease, because of her issue of blood, was, uh, was considered unclean according to Jewish law. So she, she couldn't be around other people. So she was, you know, kind of kept to the side, stayed at home a lot, didn't do much. But somehow this woman heard about Jesus. That means that there was someone who believed in Jesus, who knew what Jesus had promised, who knew what Jesus was here to do, and that person was willing to go to this woman and tell her about Jesus. Now, we're all sitting here in this room, and we have the privilege of going to an amazing church with an amazing pastor and a hearing, hearing amazing words about an amazing God. But if we're not willing to go and tell people about Jesus, if we're not willing to go tell people what God has promised to do, what God has paid the price for, if other people don't find out this truth that we've heard here, then people are missing out. Whether we're joining the evangelism team and going out every couple, every couple weeks, whether we're talking to coworkers, whether we're sharing with our neighbors, we need to be the kind of people that are telling other people about Jesus so that they can say that they've heard the wonderful things that Jesus can do. Someone say amen. amen. Yeah, there we go. We need to be the kind of people who tell other people about what Jesus has done and what Jesus is going to do. Amen? When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately, the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. 
And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. How did Jesus know that this woman had faith? It would have to be because of the things that she said and the things that she did, right? She said right here in verse 28, If only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. In fact, I think that phrase right there, shall be made well, is the Greek word sozo. It's the same word salvation translated throughout the Bible. So she said, if only I may touch the hem of his garment, I shall be saved of this disease. Pastor Mike was talking about this a bit this morning, but salvation is the same across the board. Salvation so that you can have your sins forgiven and go to heaven is the same salvation that heals you. It's the same salvation that provides your needs. It's the same salvation that brings you peace. It's all the same work that was done by Jesus. This woman said, I shall be saved. I shall be made whole. She didn't doubt what God was going to do. She didn't doubt the power of God. She didn't doubt the willingness of God. She made a declarative statement. And not only that, not only did her words give her faith away, but her actions gave her faith away. This woman put herself in a pretty difficult situation she could have gotten in a lot of trouble for being out in public around so many people. But it didn't matter to her because she understood, I'm going to receive. I'm going to be healed. And by the time someone shows up and tells me that I shouldn't be here because I'm sick, I'm not going to be sick anymore. I shall be made whole. This woman came to Jesus with the end in mind. This woman came to Jesus knowing that the, the U.S. had won the hockey game. She came to Jesus knowing that Jesus was willing and able and going to heal her and that she was going to receive. Amen. And Jesus called that, Jesus called that expectation, that assurance, knowing the end in mind, he called that faith. Let's look at one more example. Mar Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. Oh, here we go. So, what I actually want to do here, you know, most of us are probably familiar with, with the Bible and with the New Testament, but just in case you're not, there's four Gospels in the Bible and they're not different stories. They all tell the same stories about Jesus. They're very similar stories. They're all different biographies about Jesus' life and ministry here on the earth. And so sometimes you might read a story in Matthew, and then you'll read the same, same story in Mark. And Matthew might give you certain details that Mark doesn't give you. Or Mark might give you certain details that Matthew doesn't give you. So what I want to do is I'm going to read the first couple of verses from Mark chapter 7. And then I'm going to finish the story in Matthew chapter 15 because... Uh, Mark gives us a couple details that Matthew doesn't give us. So I'm going to start Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 26. From there Jesus arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and wanted no one to know it. I like that. So Jesus gets back from whatever trip, and he just wants, like, the night off, right? So, which we, we don't think of, of that being something Jesus would do, but, you know, Jesus needed rest too. So Jesus gets back, and it says he entered the house and he wanted no one to know it. But he could not be hidden for a woman whose young daughter had an, un uh, for a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth and she kept asking him to cast out the demon, uh, to cast the demon out of her daughter. Jumping to Matthew chapter 15, verse 23. But Jesus answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But Jesus answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. So let me ask you, how did Jesus know that this woman had faith? It would have to be because of the things that she said, right? But not only the things that she was saying, it was the things that she did. But it wasn't really just the things that she said and the things that she did. It's the things that she kept saying and the things that she kept doing. You know, if, if I ever, like, go missing and you need to hire someone to find me, like, you hire this woman. Jesus was trying to hide from people, and this woman hunted him down. She tracked him to the house. She got into the house, and then she refused to leave until she got what she came for. This woman came to Jesus with the end in mind. There was no doubt what was going to happen. In fact, Jesus to some degree, tries to get out of it. He's like, you know, no, now's not the time for you. And the woman says, hogwash, now's the time for me, and I'm not leaving until I get it. And Jesus calls that faith. He calls that great faith. I think this is even cooler. If you read it in Hebrew, he calls it mega faith. This woman, ha- or in Greek, rather, he calls it mega faith. This woman who tracked down Jesus came to him knowing that the U.S. was going to win the hockey game. She came knowing that God was going to give her what he had promised. She came knowing that God was faithful to his word and that she was going to get what she came to receive. And the Bible calls that mega faith. So let's look at what these three people had in common. They all came to Jesus with the end in mind. They all knew what was going to happen. They all came with visible faith. And they all did something in response to their faith. They didn't just know in their hearts that they believed. But their beliefs manifested in some physical way. The centurion made a statement of faith. He said, speak the word only, and this will happen. My servant will be made well. The woman pressed through the crowd, which would have been illegal for her to do, because she was so confident that God was going to give her what she needed. She said, I shall be made whole. I shall be saved. I shall be made well. And the Syrophoenician woman hunted down Jesus, forced her way into his house, and refused to leave until she got what she came for. There was a physical manifestation. There was a corresponding action to the things that they stated they believed. Now again, Pastor Mike talked about this this morning. You can flip to Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you've never heard this before. But we read in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's that same Greek word, sozo. The same word used by the woman with the issue of blood when she said, I shall be made whole. I shall be sozoed. I shall be saved. And right here we read that you will be saved if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth. So we see the recipe. You believe something, but then you put action to what you believe. There's a physical manifestation to what you believe. In fact, we read in James Chapter 2, that faith without works is dead. And a lot of people get hung up on what that means, like faith without works is dead, because I thought we were saved by faith alone, through grace and not of works, lest any man boast. And James isn't disagreeing with that, but James is giving clarification to how faith works. In fact, if you read that verse in the New, uh, the New International Version, the NIV, it says this, faith, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. The New Living says, faith without action is useless. So the Bible tells us, 
that if we truly have faith, it's not just that we believe something, but we believe something, and because of that belief, we do something. We put flesh to it. We put something physical to it. Whether it's speaking words or, or performing some action, whether it's pushing yourself through a crowd, whether it's breaking into Jesus' house and refusing to leave, you put action to the things that you believe. Because if there's no corresponding action to your beliefs, then according to James, it's useless. It's dead. When you're believing with the end in mind, your faith should be, vis- should be visible. When you're believing with the end in mind, your faith should be visible. We read in Hebrews that faith, uh, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. And when you believe for something, when you believe God that you're going to receive, the manifestation of that belief, you receiving healing, that may be invisible to other people. It may be unseen. But your faith should not be invisible. Your faith should be, uh, your faith should be seen by everyone you come in contact with. Now, something that I think is remarkable is the story of Abraham. So Abraham, Abraham his name was Abram when God appeared to him, which means uh, exalted father. So he's walking around, and his name is exalted father. And he's in his 70s, and then he's in his 80s, and he's in his 90s, and he has no kids. But he's walking around telling people, hi, my name is exalted father. And then God says, I don't want you to introduce yourself as exalted father anymore. And Abraham was probably like, oh, thank goodness. And he goes, no, no, no. I want you to call yourself father of many nations. I want you to call yourself father of a multitude. So you have this guy, Abraham, no kids, moves to a brand new country, and he's walking around. Hey, what's your name? Well, my name is Brock. What's your name? My name is father of a multitude. Oh, cool. So you must have like a bunch of kids. Well, not yet, but just wait till you see him. I'm going to have a ton of them. They're going to be all over this place. They're going to take over the whole country. It's going to be amazing. He walked around telling people what he was going to receive decades before he ever received it. People in this room, you may need small things. You may need big things. And I think a lot of times when we have needs, we get timid about it. We don't want to say anything about it until, until it's already happened. Now, I need to be healed, but I can't walk around telling people that Jesus already healed me because then they're going to start asking questions like, well, then why do you still have a limp? Or why doesn't look like it? And so we don't say anything about it. We're quiet about it. We keep it to ourselves. And then we're waiting for that moment where suddenly it works and then we can go tell everyone. But that's not what the Bible says to do. And really, that's not the kind of faith that receives. That's not believing with the end in mind. That's walking around saying, well, I don't know if the United States is going to win the hockey game, so I'm just going to pretend like I don't care about the hockey game until someone wins, and then I'm going to go tell everyone that I already knew it was going to happen. That's not what you do. If you believe something, you say something. If you believe something, you do something. Because it's not some hope, it's not some dream, it's not some fairy tale that may or may not happen. It's concrete. The Bible says that faith is the evidence of things unseen. Do you believe that there's evidence to the things that are unseen? The things that you're believing for? When I was in college, this was back in in 2006, I took a comparative religions class, and my teacher hated me because he thought that he knew a bunch of things about Christianity and every time he would lecture, on, it, was, it was Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. And so he would stand up and he'd say, well, Christians believe this. And I'd say, like, well, I'm the only Christian in the room and I don't believe that. And, uh, and one of the things he asked in class, this was early on, this is like when he first started to, to dislike me tremendously. He asked the class, he said, everyone, what is faith? And this kid in the front stuck his hand up and said, faith is when you believe something without any evidence. And the teacher said, exactly, you're correct. And I said, he said, yes, Garrett. He said, well, like, I have this Bible, and, like, this is probably a good place to figure out what Christians believe about faith, right? Like, I mean, college is, you know, informative and all, but this probably will give us a bit more information about how faith works, right? And in this book, in Hebrews chapter 11, it doesn't say that faith is believing things without evidence. It says that faith is the evidence. The fact that you have faith, in the unseen, the fact that you put substance to the things 
that you hope for. These are sureties to you. You have confidence that God is able and willing to perform what he has promised. That's faith. Faith isn't keeping your fingers crossed and hoping that maybe someday God will do something. Faith is saying, I already know how the game ends. The U.S. has won. I already know what's going to happen. God has healed me. Something that's remarkable is you read in the Old Testament, this is Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. It says, it's prophesying about Jesus who is to come. It's maybe 600 years before Jesus has even been born on the earth. So six to 700 years before Jesus was on the earth, the Bible prophesies about Jesus. And it says this, it says that by his stripes, we are healed. 700 years before Jesus died on the cross, it said, we are healed. It didn't say we will be healed. It didn't say someday far in the future, 700 years from now, we are going to be healed. It says we are healed because they looked forward in faith, having already received what had not yet happened yet. Jesus hadn't yet died on the cross, but the promise was real to him. What's really cool about that is that 700 years later, Jesus did die on the cross. He did receive stripes on his back to pay the price for our sickness and our disease. He was raised from the dead. And then when Peter quotes that verse from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, he misquotes it slightly. He doesn't say, by his stripes we are healed, which like now might be the time to talk in the present tense because this had just happened. He doesn't say we are healed. He says, by his stripes, we were healed. It's past tense. It's already happened. The price has already been paid. This already belongs to you. Do we believe that we were healed? Do we believe that God has provided all of our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus? Or are we waiting for something to take place in the future? Are we keeping our fingers crossed that maybe, oh maybe, maybe we'll be lucky. Maybe God will have compassion on us and do something extra for us. Or do we know that it's done? Do we know that the hockey game has already been won by the U.S.? Do we know that by his stripes we were healed? Do we know that the prayer of faith saves the sick? Same word, sozo. The prayer of faith sozos the sick. Are we believing with the end in mind? I think when we come to God, when we come to God when we have needs, we need to have what Jesus called faith. We don't need to even have what Jesus called mega faith. Jesus said faith the size of a mustard seed can receive. The Bible says faith the size of a mustard seed comes with the end in mind. Faith the size of a mustard seed knows that the United States has already won the hockey game. Faith the size of a mustard seed knows that by his stripes we were healed. Why don't we all stand up? Here's what I want us to do. No, again, I don't know everyone's situation in here. I don't know. Maybe you're here and you're here because things are just fine and dandy and you like to come to church on Sundays. Maybe you're here because you're sick and you're in need of healing. Maybe you're here because you need a, a booster shot of faith for an area of your life. Maybe you've been coming to this church for 32 years and you've heard these scriptures over and over and over again and you've believed with the end in mind and you've received time and time again from our faithful God. Or maybe this is your first time here and you know nothing about God other than that God is good and God wants you saved. Whatever you believe, 
All it requires is faith the size of a mustard seed. So what I want us to do is just all to ourselves. You know, we don't have to shout it. We don't have to be loud and, and boisterous and anything. But I want us to put action to our faith. That could be as simple as you quietly saying to yourself what the Bible says. Just standing there and just confessing to yourself, by his stripes I was healed. By his stripes I was healed. By his stripes I was healed. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his benefits, who heals my diseases. Bless the Lord, O my soul, I will not forget all his benefits. He has delivered me from destruction. It could just be, God, you are good. Thank you that you are good and that you saved me. Thank you that you are good and you have paid the price. You may not know much, but what you know, put action to it. Put words to it. So right now, why don't we all just, again, it doesn't have to be loud and yelling. You can be loud if you want to be, within reason. But just tell God what you know. Tell God what you believe. Make declarative statements that you've come with the end in mind. God, you are so good. You are so incredible. You are so mighty. You are so holy. You are so worthy of our praise. We thank you that you are a good God. We thank you that you take care of your people. We thank you that you are the God who heals. That you sent your word and healed us of our diseases and delivered us from our destructions. We thank you that by your stripes we were healed. We aren't going to be healed. We aren't waiting to be healed. We were healed. The price has been paid. Thank you, Jesus, that the price has been paid. And right now, we declare that all sickness must leave. Sickness in, if you have sickness in your body, if you have infirmity in your body, just command it right now. You cannot stay here. Jesus paid the price. Sickness be gone from my body. Sickness be gone. We cast you out in the name of Jesus. You cannot remain. This body is healthy. This body is whole. This body is saved. This body is perfectly restored in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you heal all who need healing. Thank you that you go about doing good and cleansing us from all sickness, from all uncleanliness, from all disease, from all infirmity. We thank you, Lord, that you are faithful, that you are just, that you are good. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You are so incredible, God. You are so incredible, God. Hallelujah. We put, we put action to our faith. We put action to our beliefs because we know it's done. We know it's done. Hallelujah. Now, I want to say this. I don't know, people might hear the statistic that men speak 7,000 words a day and women speak 20,000 words a day. Has anyone ever heard that? So I looked it up, and apparently it's not true. Apparently men speak 15,000 words a day and women speak 16,000 words a day. So it's pretty close, according to the Internet, which is always right, I know. <laughs> but this is something I thought was interesting when I read that. It said that although men and women speak about 15,000 words a day, that most people only speak 500 to 700 words of substance a day. When Jesus told the centurion that he had mega faith, it was in response to the man, the centurion, coming to Jesus and saying, speak the word only in this situation. Speak the word only. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28 I'll just read it because I'll forget it if I try to quote it. But Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, talking about the way we use our words, says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, 
The only words we should be speaking are good, necessary words of grace that edify people. And I think that when we're believing for things, it's really tempting to use our words the wrong way. It's really tempting to say things that the Bible doesn't say, to dwell on our situations and and dwell on what seems to be happening, to talk about how the U.S. is one man down and we're playing the greatest team in the world and that there's probably no hope or that the doctor just gave us a really bad diagnosis and that we're probably not going to make it. It's really tempting to use words like that. But we aren't like other people. We're Christians. We're children of the Most High God. And those rules don't apply to us. We have the end in mind. We know what God has promised. We know he is faithful. And we know that we were healed. So I want to encourage you. Use your words wisely. Use your words wisely. Speak the word only. Now you're going to have some difficulty speaking the word only when you're giving business presentations, but it can be done. I quote Proverbs a lot. That'll help you with your business stuff. But as much as possible... Speak the word only. Don't speak corrupt words about yourself. Speak good words. Speak necessary words. Speak words of truth and words of life. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. The Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The things that you say give away what's in your heart. And so it's not enough to say, I have faith that I'm going to be healed. Does your neighbor think that you have faith to be healed based on the words that you speak to him? Does your boss think that you have faith to be healed based on the words that you speak around them? Every Christian will say that they have faith, but you really find out what's in a person's heart when you talk to other people about what they say. So let your words be words of life. If you only have 500 to 700 uh, words of substance every day, then speak 500 to 700 words of God's word every day. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lord, you are so good. You are so good. You are so incredibly good. (laughs) I could say it all day long. You are so good, God. You are so good. You are so good to your people. And we thank you that you are good, that healing is good, that salvation is good, that all these things are good and all these things have been paid for. We thank you that we don't need to be confused about what's going to happen. We don't need to be worried about what's going to happen because we know who wins the game. Or rather, we know who's won the game. You lead us in triumph in all things that we do. And we thank you for the victory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, thank you for being here tonight. Uh, Just a reminder that Pastor Chip will be here on Wednesday night ministering, so make sure that you're here for that. Uh, And if not, if you can't make it, Keith Hershey will be here on Sunday. So we'll see you then. Thank you very much. Have a great week.